He had no idea how long he'd been there. After a while, though, even the deepest sorrow faltered. Even the most penetrating despair lost its scalpel edge. The flagellant's curse, he thought, to grow a nerd even to the whip. A great paragraph from I Am Legend. Welcome to the Stardust Lounge and the podcast Literary Guys. I'm author Zachary Kellyan. And I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. We are still talking about the vampire apocalypse. We are plumbing the depths of this man's despair. You know, we, we kind of left off on, a, on an interesting subject uh, when we met last week related to men losing control of their environment, just as Robert Neville is in this novel, and just as many men might feel they are in 2021. And I kind of wanted to continue that discussion with you. Do you feel like you've lost control of the Stardust Lounge? You know, I feel like we sit in this darkened corner with these microphones We've become less approachable as bar regulars, and I do feel a little bit like that is beyond my control, yes. Okay. I mean, I just felt like I was never in control. I I gave up actually picking entrees. Just randomly things showed up, so I don't know. Maybe I have become inured to the whip, as it were, of entree selection here. You know, one of the entrees at here at the Stardust does involve a flaming sword, and I do feel like there is some control taken away when the little uh, gas licks of flame kind of fall onto the table mm-hmm. and we're just expected to sit there and, and take it and i think that uh, that's a great lesson for any man but yeah i think there's a really interesting commentary that richard matheson is making here showing at least in this first half of the novel robert neville as a man in a world completely beyond his control and i think that we are experiencing that very much in 2021 mm-hmm specifically when it comes to white men, which both you and I identify as such. Um, You see a lot of white men that feel uh, correctly or incorrectly that the world is turning against them, that the the, the nation is changing for the worse because they no longer have as adamant a say in politics and local governance and even their households as they maybe once had. I think anybody who's really paying attention can kind of see like, yeah, when you have that much unchecked privilege for so long and some of that unchecked privilege is brought into question, it can feel like you're losing rights and like your life is falling apart, but really you're just normalizing to the world that everybody else has had to live in under your control. I think that would be the progressive argument of it. But I can certainly see why uh, some of these men might feel this way. And to me, it does explain the actions of anything from extreme as mass shooters to something as unimportant as those guys who kind of wear their uh, COVID masks over their mouth, but not their nose, just to have you know some form of control, to cling to some form of self-actualization uh, with their symbolism. You know, I'll wear your mask, but I'll wear it my way. I think we've kind of seen that, so many examples of that in 2021. And I think it's an important thing for us as men to discuss, especially amongst other men. So I was curious, Dr. McCallan, what your thoughts were there. I'm going to tease these types of loss of control apart. Yeah. I think the way I'm going to do that is to talk about the white male privilege issue and then to talk about the covid slash vampirism is that a word vampirism (laughs) yes yes that is thinly veiled in the story uh in this very prophetic work so i I think think you're right to do so i think they are two separate things because i will say uh yesterday i was at the state fair Mm -hmm. uh, where wearing a mask even outdoors was mandatory and the amount of men not wearing the masks were about 50 50 and it was across all races 
It was strictly a masculine thing that I noticed, and it was irrespective of race. So I think it's good to tease those two apart. Yeah, because I, I think what we're seeing here is, and, I, and I'm not saying that these are clear lines of distinction, yeah. but, but I do think that generally speaking, that there's two buckets. I think the white male privilege issue I think our generation is going through some very interesting periods of time and of growth relating to this. Because in this case, a big root of the issue is that white male privilege stems from the fact of not understanding that other people are not receiving that privilege. It's about the lack of understanding there was a privilege in the first place. And I think to some degree, I'd always internalized that, but it really has been amplified over the past few years where really the visibility of where things have been falling apart for folks who are not white male that that really has said that this is not just a problem of external forces this is also a function of a lack of understanding of what was going on so there were haves and have nots in that case Mm -hmm. i think when we look at the covid vampirism type situation i think everyone is a have not yeah and that to me is really fascinating yes there are some people who they're very lucky from a cash perspective they immediately got on their super yachts and went off to some secret private island and have been riding this thing out but don't think that they haven't been affected at all because no matter how nice your secret island is it's kind of nice to leave every now and then well as we learned from the day of the dead series vampires can swim so they are not safe Mm Hmm. that's a good point but what I'm trying to get at is that the pandemic has hurt everyone. It has hurt different people in different Mm -hmm. ways and to different amounts. Definitely there's a lot of good data that says that that this has actually caused a further divide in wealth inequality. So it clearly has been less bad for some people, Mm. but it has been bad for everybody in different ways, some of which can be very difficult in order to crisply state. Like, this has affected everybody, and I think this is getting to the loss of control that we see in the book, that that's what resonates with me. It's this everyone was in the same boat. Maybe there were some folks who were a little luckier and didn't get this bacteria or whatever it is right away, but it definitely affected everybody. And so I think one of the parallels here to the 2021, which we live and are recording this episode, is how do you cope with that? Mm -hmm. You make your own control. And how do people do it? It's fascinating because in this book and in real life, what we saw people doing was holing up inside Mm -hmm. of their houses and starting redecorating projects. (laughs) You know, ordering a bunch of stuff online and... And decorating their homes, doing projects, making Sound it... Soundproofing th- against vampire catcalls. It's exactly what it is. I mean, okay, it's a little different here, but it, it, 90% of it's true. No, I get so, what you're saying, for sure. And so that's one of the things that really just resonated with me, is there is a desire, and I don't know if it's talking about masculinity here, or if this is something which is equal across all genders, but there is something deeply reassuring about retreating into your home and making it your castle. Yeah, and I think there's that fantasy appeal element to some of these post-apocalyptic stories where you are the last man standing, you are the king of your castle, you know, you've kind of got the run of all the town's resources at your disposal. 
And I think that's why some of these narratives are so appealing. It's interesting when you talk about how people deal specifically with this pandemic versus how Robert Neville dealt with his own pandemic. I find it interesting that one of the clear divides we have here in 2021 is people turning away from science, where you have Robert Neville facing a plague who is not a man of science, not a learned man at all, but turns towards science for his answers and in, in, indeed embraces that scientific method to get the answers he needs when so many of our country, not so many, but you know, a, a large chunk, 30, 40%, depending on your state's vaccination rate, have eschewed at least some forms of science because they're not giving them the answers that they want. So this is a little bit later in the book. But since we're on the topic, I think it's really interesting to dig into is how much of this is being fueled by the media mm-hmm. and about people's desire in order to communicate a message and to take what is already an awful situation and add sensationalism to it. Mm-hmm. And so if I can read here, as I say, this is closer to the end of the book. Toward the end of the plague, yellow journalism had spread a cancerous dread of vampires to all corners of the nation. He could remember himself the rash of pseudoscientific articles that veiled an out-and-out fright campaign designed to sell papers. There was something grotesquely amusing in that, the frenetic attempt to sell papers while the world died. Not all the newspapers had done that. Those papers that had lived in honesty and integrity died the same way. Nice, nice. That is a great quote. I mean, when I read that, I literally just stopped and flipped back a page. And I wanted to read the the lead into it again, not just to read that quote. Like Mm -hmm. That seriously was one of the standout moments of this book. So I think it's really interesting to say, again, you want to retreat away from, from the world. You want to make your own castle. You want to have control. And you have people screaming at you, maybe through the media, maybe through newspapers, but they're just trying to tell you, no, you'll never be safe. No, you'll never be able to do anything. No, this is, it's just an amplifying effect, for lack of a a better word. And it makes people more scared. It makes people lash out more. Well, and when you're scared, you turn to quote unquote reliable sources for comfort. And so I think we've seen this ever since September 11th. I remember, we all remember when September 11th happened, if you were of age when that occurred. And that bright red breaking news banner at the bottom of the television screen, I don't feel like has ever left CNN or Fox News. Mm -hmm. It's kind of always there. Something's breaking. Something's red alert. And I think they recognize that that keeps people watching. And sure, that's their job as a 24-hour news cycle, but it certainly doesn't do a lot for our mental health. And I think when you've got something like, you know, vampire plague or with the COVID pandemic that we're actually experiencing, one of the things that we see with so many people, it's called proportional bias. This plague, this this COVID epidemic is so insane to even think about mm-hmm. the number of people who are dying, how quickly it spread, how just surreal this has all felt to all of us that our explanations for where it might be coming from become even more surreal and more outrageous because is it just one bat in Wuhan province or is it Bill Gates orchestrating this whole thing to get microchips in people? I very much understand the psychology of where people come from, why they turn away from science because science is saying, hey, you just gotta wait this out, we've gotta get this vaccine approved and then everybody gets meted out this vaccine in a way that we dictate. Hey, as a man, that strips me of all my control. My job as a man, this is not me speaking, but maybe for some men, my job as a man is to protect my family. 
and I don't feel like I have any control in that. But then I've got this other news source over here saying like, hey, you know, don't take the vaccine. Don't vaccinate your family. That's actually going to protect them. Well, I can protect my family against that. And it, it subconsciously reinforces that there is some control in the situation that in all reality, the average man or woman does not have any control over. And so I could kind of understand where that comes from. But I think then that goes back to that, what we were talking about earlier uh, last week about how we raise our men. We raise our men to think you have to be in charge. You have to, it's up to you to do X, Y, and Z when bad things happen, things go awry in the world. And I think that we've kind of created a, a nation of impotent, frustrated men who don't feel like they have any control over the situation and are going to exert their control in increasingly ridiculous ways. Let me just say, I think, I think you're making a really good point here. And I want to again tie it back to this idea of home and of house and of control. Okay. Because what I'm seeing is, let's rewind well before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, both you and I, we independently moved out here to the West Coast. And we're living in a city which, let's be honest, it's very liberal. Yeah. In fact, I'm not even sure that's strong enough a word in order to describe the general political scene that, that is Seattle. But I, I tend not to look at things through through politics. I look at things more often through what is the thought pattern? What is the thing that drives us that we want to be part of? I find, and it may not always agree with people around here, but I, I often can understand that there are like-minded people here mm-hmm. and seem to be more like-minded than a lot of other places. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing. The world was already going crazy before we had this pandemic. I chose many years ago to move here because... I liked the people, and I liked liked many things about it. That was my way of exerting control. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that if you put it in the lens of what you were just talking about, that you would say, well, maybe I made a choice that I wasn't going to, like, take action, or, you know, that I was just going to follow what science said that we should do, or not be action-oriented male do-gooder mentality. No, but maybe I kind of did. I exerted control by getting myself into an environment where I felt comfortable. That it just so happened that over time it played out to to the fact that I'm very happy that if I had to ride out a pandemic that I was able to do it in Seattle. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, yeah, just to be clear to our listeners, uh, Seattle is an absolutely ridiculous place. And even no matter how liberal you might be coming here, it's going to be called into question when you meet Seattle liberals because they're an entire different breed. But really, it's no different than if you go to a small conservative town where Mm -hmm. some of their ideas might seem equally as extreme or, you know, um, isolated. So anytime you are in a bubble, anytime you're in kind of an echo chamber, you're going to experience that. I do think, yeah, both you and I certainly lean more in that direction. And so for us, you know, it was comforting to know that King County, where we live, had the highest vaccination rate in the United States. That was comforting to us. But I also find it really interesting that as you've got that pocket of extreme liberalism, a progressivism that that does benefit us, at least in terms of a pandemic, at least by our definition. I mean, you go 20 minutes outside of Seattle and you see some of the most virulent anti-liberal propaganda that I've ever seen in the country. Because you've got these folks who don't feel like the big city of Seattle speaks for them. You know, they might still be farmers or they might still be blue collar workers. Mm -hmm. And because of the extremeness of our city in Seattle, they almost go the other way. And so the vaccination rates, you know, just a couple counties south of us is some of the lowest in the country. 
And I just think that that dichotomy is really interesting when you look at, you know, when you put it into the I Am Legend universe, you look at a guy like Robert Neville, who I don't think was a gun-toting alcoholic prior to this pandemic, but now is just drinking all the time. It's just popping shots into vampires left and right. It's kind of just run amok because he's faced with this extreme environment and his only way to assert some control over it is to take the opposite extreme. So in the chapters we're talking about here today, that we start to see the glimpses of Robert Neville taking a different kind of action, taking a different kind of control. I think, and it's not really a great thing to say about humanity or about men, but he found control in the bottom of a bottle. Like, Mm -hmm. that was the control he had over his environment. And any addict would tell you is a temporary control, and it was for Robert Neville, too. You know, the alcoholism eventually caused many more problems than it solved for him, and he was Mm -hmm. able to kind of realize that over a period of time. The new control that he found was science. Yeah. And here's a guy who, I don't know if it ever really is talked about much, but I don't think he really had a scientific background or anything of that nature. I don't know. I can't actually remember what his background is, but I do remember a passage where it specifically talks about, like, this was not even his comfort zone. He didn't even like this subject in school. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it's almost like, in, in absence of anything else, it's interesting that drinking and gun mania was his first choices to deal with the problem but everything else has not worked out and so he's going way outside his comfort zone and i don't know where he's getting all these microscope slides in his little town during a vampire apocalypse but he's finding them and he's he's getting to the bottom of this bacteria that's kind of infected these people i do enjoy the bit where he goes to get the microscope though like that to me was delightful where he got one and he just got so frustrated with it i think he (laughs) threw it against the floor Um, I mean, I've used a lot of terrible microscopes in my day, so I know what that feels like. But the fact that he he was meta-unequipped to be dealing with these questions, like it wasn't even that he couldn't understand the textbooks initially or understand what to do. Like he's sitting there beating himself up because he didn't know how to buy a a microscope. And I mean, who really does? Like, I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to just walk into a store and pick out a great one. I can tell you some basic things. But like, it's interesting that he went through that phase. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't feel for that reason like a 1980s movie montage with music playing in the background. Like, here's Robert Neville learning about science. Like, I mean, you could imagine the bad version of that. Yeah. It doesn't play out like that at all. It actually plays out with this sort of random walk, if you will, mm-hmm. through science and understanding. And he doesn't trust himself. And he doesn't have the right tools. He doesn't have the right mental models for things. But it's interesting that as the book goes on, that forms the control that he does effectively latch on to. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you look at his reaction versus maybe some folks in America who are going in the opposite direction of science, Again, my sympathies, even though I don't agree with their decision, and I think it's ultimately very destructive and harmful to our society, I can kind of sympathize with them because the science is not in their control either. Robert Neville's one voice. There's no media. There's no other actual educated scientist to do the work for him. Mm -hmm. And some people don't like being told, hey, I'm the science expert. I am going to decide what's best for you and your family. That doesn't gel with their identity as a man, their identity as a provider or head of household, what have you. And so I can kind of understand a little bit. You got to take a step back, folks, and at some point recognize, you know, uh, Dr. McAllen knows more about computer programming than I do because he is very well educated in that. I know better than to ever try to trump his knowledge in those areas. 
But I do think a lot of people aren't taking that step back. They're just feeling like, you're not going to tell me what to do because I know what's best for my family. And, and the truth is, when it comes to global pandemics and that level of science, we don't know what's best. Even the scientists, I mean, they've changed their messaging about COVID, you know, a half dozen times because yeah, we're all just kind of learning. True. We're all just kind of learning about this pandemic as we go along. So I think it's to a degree outside of all of our control. And so the extremes that we're seeing in human behavior, I think to an extent is very understandable. I don't have to like it. I don't have to side with that faction. But I think if we could all give each other a little bit of grace and understand like, hey, we're just scared right now. And these are people who are just acting out of fear, just like Robert Neville did for the first half of this novel. So an idea I'd like to explore for a moment, and, and we'll never be able to really answer this question because, you know, it's, it's essentially the nature versus nurture question, mm. but this male behavior that we're talking about here today, is this men or is this about the masculinity that we've been taught? You know, I, I think it is mostly environmental, but, you know, we're animals, and if evolution has taught an animal to act a certain way to best navigate its environment over time, some of that is going to be baked into its DNA. You know, my parents were anti-gun. They didn't want a gun in the house. They didn't buy me toy guns. They didn't let me watch anything with a gun in it. And yet, they remember when I was two years old, I picked up a stick and used it as a gun. Because to a certain extent, a man is a warrior was integrated into my DNA, even though that's never environmentally how they taught me. And so I think it's probably mostly environmental, but I do think that there's something intrinsic to being a man that tells us subconsciously we need to exert control in these situations. It's up to us as intelligent, progressive men to not always heed those subconscious impulses to kind of understand where that's coming from and learn how to navigate around it. But I do think some of it's baked in. What about you? What do you think? I just keep going back to the parallels that we have to what's happening now to what happened 100 years ago. Like a lot of the same behavior, a lot of the same sensationalism in the media, mm -hmm. the anti-mask brigades during the, the pandemic of 1919, that things haven't changed that much. Nope. And there were the same proponents of science and there were the same folks who, as you say, wanted to have some level of control and wanted to do something. And sometimes even saying no is doing something. You know, we, we often think of it as inaction, but sometimes saying no, I'm not going to do that is very much an action. I think we've changed a lot as a people. I think we've grown a lot, but this doesn't seem to have changed. And that to me is really fascinating. That points to something that is a little bit more innate in who we are. It's a really good point. I think if you're discouraged by humanity right now, as well you should be, based on a lot of what we've seen in terms of how we've reacted to this pandemic, you only need to look back at the news reports from the Spanish influenza to see that people acted the exact same way. There was the mass debate all over again. There were people hoarding. There were people going crazy. Uh, because we are a literary podcast, I thought I would share with you guys really quickly a uh, letter from F. Scott Fitzgerald, one of my favorite authors, written during the Spanish influenza, just to kind of give everybody an idea of what some of the elite were going through. The officials have alerted us to ensure we have a month's worth of necessities. Zelda and I have stocked up on red wine, whiskey, rum, vermouth, absinthe, white wine, sherry, gin, and Lord, if we need it, brandy. Please pray for us. 
Who was that written to? It was written to one of his friends who was asking. They were they were in the south of France, and they kind of just got this little chateau and loaded up on all the necessities. Mm-hmm. And that's just always been one of my favorite bits of uh, of a history from the Spanish flu. That's great. I mean, it's sad, but it's also a great <laughs> quote. I mean, they both essentially died of alcoholism. So yeah, that's yeah, kinda, yeah, it's probably kinda not good. So we're kind of running up against the end of the show here. Uh, Do we have a sponsor for today? We do. Uh, As you know, Robert Neville's main form of transportation is a Willys Jeep. So uh, a hometown sponsor for us here, Jeep, finally got in the mix here. Willys Jeeps, the perfect means of conveyance during a vampire apocalypse. Our patented septuple vented grills are perfect for clearing out hordes of the undead, while our easily detachable doors give you unparalleled ventilation against any airborne vampirus bacterium. Willie's Jeeps, built with pride in Toledo, Ohio. Vampire free since 1999. It's great to have a hometown sponsor. Yeah. And even in season one, it's fantastic. I, I, I was really honored. I, I'm not really sure why Toledo had vampires in it prior to 1999, mm-hmm. but good to know it doesn't any longer. I think at some point we need to pick up Tony Pacos as a sponsor. I think Tony Pacos would be a great literary sponsor. Does Tony Pacos, Sport Peppers, would those defend against vampires? That's a tough conversation. I don't know if we're ready to address that here yet. This whole bit really appealing to our two Toledo listeners and any fans of Jamie Farr's character from MASH, I guess. I suppose so. It's a damn good hot dog, though. Anyhow, with that, I think this is probably a great time to wrap things up. Uh, Zach, how can our listeners stay in touch with us? You know, assuming a global apocalypse does not shut down all communication in the next week, we'd love to hear from you guys through our social media channels on Twitter at Literary Guys. You can uh, email us. You can go to literaryguys.com to get the schedule of our upcoming books, to reach out to us and kind of just let us know how we're doing, give us feedback, participate in the discussion. Sounds great. As always, we want to thank the Stardust Lounge, Edgar Bergamot on piano, Crystal behind the bar, And next week, we're going to start digging into the second half of the book, where, surprise, surprise, we have a new best friend for Neville. I was was hoping we were going to talk about the dog. Yeah. And I'm also a little sad about the dog. Yeah. But we're not going to build it up like, you know, suspense, the dog dies in the end, because let's just say it right now, the dog's going to die and... Um, and we've already talked about that on our sister podcast, Edition About Dogs. Mm-hmm. Although, uh, aren't we still on um, Marley and Me? Which segues perfectly into the season two crossover that we'll be doing between Literary Guys and Edition With Dogs, where we talk about literary dog books that have been adapted into movies. Believe it or not, there is a whole season's worth. Fantastic. Well, with that, I think it is time that we sign off. This has been Literary Guys. 